1 Corinthians 14, we'll begin reading at verse 27. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or three, at most three, and each in turn, and let one interpret. But if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church, and let him speak to himself and to God. And let two or three prophets speak, and let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, let the first keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. But the women keep silent in the churches, for they're not permitted to speak, but let them subject themselves, just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth, or has it come to you only? If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy, and do not forbid to speak in tongues. Let all things be done properly and in orderly manner. We see. As we conclude our exposition of chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, let's recap the highlights of what we've seen thus far. The emphasis in chapter 14 has been on prophecy and on tongues. Today's focus is going to be on orderliness in public worship. We have seen in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that prophecy and tongues and a word of knowledge were partial revelations of God, and they were operational until it says the perfect comes. And when the perfect comes, they will cease. The perfect is obviously the fulfillment. It is not partial. Therefore, whatever is meant by the partial is meant by the that which is perfect. The perfect, then, is God's completed revelation, the canon of Scripture. And the major point of chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians is to show the relationship of prophecy to tongues. Prophecy is consistently pictured in 1 Corinthians 14 as superior to tongues when there is no one there to interpret the tongues. However, if someone is there to interpret the tongues, then essentially tongues serve the same purpose as prophecy. The whole point is that Paul's been making for several chapters now is concerning the spiritual gifts is that the purpose of the spiritual gifts, as the Scripture reveals to us, not only Corinthians but in Ephesians, is for the body of Christ to be uplifted. The body of Christ must be exercised. I don't have a spiritual gift for my own benefit. Whatever spiritual gift is given to me and to you is for the purpose of, that the body might be edified. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14 to desire earnestly the greater gifts. He said prophecy, prophecy is a greater gift. 
But, and the reason he says it's a greater gift is because by its very nature, it is something that is understandable that people can be built up. When tongues were interpreted, then people could understand and be edified. And so Paul says, for example, in 1 Corinthians 14, 19, uh, he says, I would rather speak uh, in five words in prophecy than rather 10,000 words in a tongue. And if you look at verse 19, you'll see what he meant by that. He says, in the, in the church, in public worship, that phrase, in the church, is used in the scriptures and in Paul's writings to reference public worship. He says, in public worship, I desire to speak five words with my mind that I may instruct others also, rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. Now, the reason he says that again is, he says, with my mind, he says, by speaking five words that you understand is far better than thousands of words that you have no idea what's being said. And the analogy that he gives to prove that point is, for example, in verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 14. Take a look at it. Yet even lifeless things, either flute or harp, in producing a sound, if they do not produce a distinction in the tones, how will it be known what is played on the flute or on the harp? For if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? So the analogy that Paul gives here is this, is that tongues without an interpretation is fruitless to the congregation. Because you, it's like a harp or a flute that is played incorrectly. Its, it's tone is off, so no one is benefited. If you don't understand what's being said, it has no benefit to you. That's why prophecy is greater than tongues unless you have an interpreter. And so we see that <clears throat> tongues with an interpreter serves the same purpose so that when Paul says, for example, in verse 14, For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. We saw that what that meant was there is no situation whereby uh, we can think in unintelligible ways. The point here is when a person prays or he speaks in a tongue, he may know what's being said, but if, but if you don't know that language, you have no idea what's being said. I could be benefited because I do know what I'm praying. I do know what I'm saying, but you don't. Therefore, he says, there's no edification without an interpretation. We have seen, therefore, uh, so far that with regard, with, uh, concerning the purpose of tongues, it was to reveal mysteries, the mysteries of God. And we saw in the New Testament that when the Bible uses the term mysteries, it's primarily referencing the revelation of that which was hidden in ages past. And what was that? That God was going to show mercy to thousands upon thousands in multitudes of nations, multitudes of languages, 
that he would incorporate the Gentiles into with his ancient people, the Jews, and that together they would be one body. There's not a superiority of the Jews over the Gentiles. No, they are both in the church. They are both uh, glorifying God together. That was the mystery hidden in ages past and has been revealed. And so we saw that tongues, uh, 1 Corinthians 14, is not talking about two types of tongues. It's not a foreign language and an ecstatic language. The, the passage itself in 1 Corinthians 14 demonstrates Paul in his use of verses 21 and 22. makes it a point that the tongues he's been sp- speaking about is a foreign language. That's why in verse 21 he references Isaiah 28.11, where God will send upon a rebellious people those who are rebelling against him, he says, I will send you a people that you don't understand. And here's what God is saying. We saw that tongue serves a purpose, a twofold purpose. It is a curse to unbelievers, but it is a blessing to those who believe. God spoke through his prophets to his ancient people in their own language, and what did they do? They didn't believe him. They disobeyed him consistently. Therefore, God says in Isaiah 28, because of your consistent rebellion against my word that in a language you can understand, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to curse you. I'm going to send you a people to dominate you with a language you don't even understand. And he sent them to Babylonia. And then eventually he will send them the Romans. And so what we see here is that it was a curse to unbelievers. However, tongues is a blessing to those who believe. Imagine this. When God poured out his spirit on the day of Pentecost, it says people from all various nations were gathered together in Jerusalem for the Passover. And all those uh, various dialects and those countries are mentioned in Acts 2. And guess what? They all said, heard the mighty works of God in their own language. They were blessed. And as a result, 3,000 of them will be converted on the day of Pentecost. And so tongues is a sign to unbelievers as a curse if you don't believe the gospel. But it is a blessing if you do believe. And so what we see here is that there's only one type of tongues. And that is, it was a foreign language. And the gift of tongues was the ability to speak in a language you did not learn before. Now, some have conjectured that there was a gift of interpretation of tongues. Sometimes it may have been the person who spoke in tongues had a multiple gift, but not always. And so what we see here, we need to keep this in mind. that The main thrust of chapter 14 is this. The church has to be edified at all times. The gifts are given for the edification of the body. 
That's the point. And so as we discuss, then, as Paul, then, in discussing prophecy in tongues, he moves on in our section that we're going to deal with today in verses 27 through verse 40 in terms of orderliness in public worship. Now, as we discuss order in public worship, we need to understand the historical context of this New Testament passage. Paul is writing to the Corinthians, and he's writing in a period of where the apostles are still around, where signs and wonders are still being done through the apostles and prophets. The perfect has not yet come. The canon of Scripture is not yet complete. It is partial revelation that's going on. That's why he says there is still the need for prophecy. There's still the use of tongues. Therefore, when we understand chapter 14, it is very important that we understand chapter 14. First of all, in its historical setting, it is still in the apostolic era. So that when he talks about in, in public worship, two or three speaking in tongues and one waiting on the other and two or three, three at most, prophesying in the church and then other prophets passing judgment on that. It does, today, we're not in the apostolic period. Now, does that mean that chapter 14 is irrelevant to us? Well, no. The principles of orderliness in public worship are still intact. We just have to appreciate the, the time in which it was given. Now, we have seen that one of the problems, for example, in understanding the Scripture, to think that these gifts are still functional, and that is one of the problems with the charismatic movement, is that it wants to distinguish, first of all, two types of tongues. But there aren't two types of tongues, as we have seen, only one type of tongue. We have seen that chapter 14 proves there's only one type of tongue. But even then, unfortunately, one of the things that is practiced in those churches that still believe these gifts are functional, they're not always applying, and rarely do they apply the text itself. Because what does Paul say? When tongues was still operational, when prophecy still was ongoing, he says you can't do it at one time. So whenever you get situations of everybody speaking in tongues at all at once, or everybody getting up, speaking in prophecy all at once. What does Paul say? Why does he forbid that? We'll take a look at verse 32. Or uh, <clears throat> uh, verse 33. The reason he gives all of that, of each is to be done one at a time. You wait on the other, whether it's tongues. And then he says no more than three in public worship whether it's tongues or prophesying. Why? Verse 33. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. 
Now, the reason he exhorts them to take their time and to do it one at a time is so that it's not confusing. Now, as a young Christian, I were in such type services where I heard tongues speaking all at once. Well, I heard some prophecy, supposedly, all at once. And as a young Christian, I was confused. I thought it was confusing. I thought it was disorderly. And guess what? I didn't know 1 Corinthians 14 said anything about it. But I knew something was off because I thought, this is really kind of unsettling, everybody talking all at once. You see, even if it were still operational, Paul sets the guidelines for order in public worship. It needs to be orderly. Now, the reason he says that it needs to be orderly is that, again, what is the main purpose of these gifts? Is so that the body is edified. If there is confusion in a worship service, that is not conducive to the edification of the body, if there's confusion. So he sets out the parameters for us. Again, as in verse 27, he says, If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or, or at the most three, and each in turn, and let one interpret. In other words, if you don't have an interpreter, you don't speak in tongues. He says it's not to be done in worship if you don't have an interpreter. Why? No one then understands what you're saying. How can I be benefited if I don't know what you're saying? So he says, if you do it, it needs to have an interpreter. Then he says, what about prophecy? Well, he says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. Meaning, other prophets pass judgment. Now, in 1 Corinthians 14, there have been some that have conjectured that there are two types of prophecy. Some have said that there is a prophecy that's inspired, and some say, quoting 1 Corinthians 14, saying there's a type of prophecy that's uninspired. But you don't get that out of chapter 14. There's only one kind of prophecy. And that's inspired prophecy. There is no such thing as uninspired prophecy. Now, why is that? Who is giving the the gift of prophecy anyway? God, right? God doesn't make mistakes. Now, we have seen here, it says, when you do have prophets in the early church, in the apostolic church, when prophecy was still going on, he says, when you do have prophets speak, Other prophets are to pass judgment upon them. Now, why would you pass judgment? Why would a prophet pass judgment on another prophet? Because there could be false prophets, right? I mean, in Israel, there were false prophets. Let's show what Paul, I think, may have been thinking about. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 13. And let's take a look at verses 1 through 5. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes true, 
concerning which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall follow the Lord your God and fear him, and you shall keep his commandments. Listen to his voice, serve him, and cling to him. But the prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death, because he has counseled rebellion against the Lord your God, who brought you from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery, to seduce you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from among you. Now, as a prophet, there were two ways you could die as a prophet. You could die as a prophet if what you predicted didn't come to pass exactly the way you said it. That was the first test of a prophet. And again, why is that true? God doesn't make mistakes, now does he? So if it doesn't come to pass, you can't say the prophecy was from God. That means you made it up yourself. So a prophet could die if their prophecy didn't come to pass. There'd be a lot of people dying today in a lot of practices on that basis alone. But you could still die as a prophet if everything you said comes to pass. And someone might say, well, he's a prophet. It came to pass. No, there was another test. And here's where I think Paul was referring other prophets are to pass judgment on the prophecy. Pass judgment how? Was that prophecy seeking to be obedient to the Lord's commandments? Where do you find the commandments of God? Right here. Or is the prophet seeking to seduce you to follow a false god? So you see, the prophecy could come to pass, and yet the prophet should be put to death because he is seeking to seduce people, and God calls it rebellion against him. To teach any other law besides the law of God is treason in God's mind. So Paul says in the Corinthian church, when prophecy was still an ongoing gift, your prophets could prophesy, but you better watch out because you're going to have other prophets there passing judgment on what you just prophesied. Now this passage in Acts doesn't have to do necessarily with prophecy, but you are familiar with the, the Berean, what's been known as the Berean principle. That when Paul came to Berea, which was in Macedonia region, it says in Acts 17, 11, Paul says to the Bereans, you were, they were more noble than the Thessalonians. Now, the Thessalonians were noble in many regards, but he says the Bereans were more noble. Why were they more noble? Well, take a look at Acts 17, 11. You'll see why they were more noble. Acts 17, 11. Now, these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. 
Now, we're talking about the Apostle Paul and his apostolic team here. And the Bereans were eager to receive the word of God, but just because it was Paul, this apostle, they still went to the Old Testament scriptures to see if there was an inconsistency. Was he saying something contrary to the word of God? And so, as a result, they eagerly listened but then they examined the scriptures daily to see if it were so. The great Apollos, we are told, who did minister to the Corinthians. In fact, Apollos did as much as anything to work in the ministry of the, of the Corinthian church. That's why, as we saw in the earlier part of Corinthians, some said, I'm of Paul, some said, I'm of Cephas, and some said, I'm of Apollos. When Apollos was instructed in the greater ways of God by Aquila and Priscilla, it says Apollos was already renowned as a man mighty in the scriptures. And so they decided to send him to Corinth from Ephesus. And it says when he was in Corinth, it says he was daily refuting the Jews in the synagogue, proving to them that Jesus was truly the Messiah. So... Apollos was a mighty man in the scriptures. But the Bereans understood that the word of God is that which is preeminent, not just the preacher, not just the prophet. And therefore, what is said is always examined. You should always examine what is being preached, no matter who it is. It's your obligation to know the Word of God and to do that so that you don't get led, led astray. What we've seen here, uh, <clears throat> that Paul said one of the other things that was going on, and in, in terms of order in worship, here's another thing that he mentions that is prohibited in public worship. And, and taking a look at 1 Corinthians 14, turn there and look at verses 34 and 35. Now, why does he bring up this whole thing with women keeping silent in the churches? It's in the context of tongue speaking and prophesying. Now, there is what we need to understand that this tongue speaking... This prophesying is during public worship in the church. Public worship. By public worship, we mean where the church has gathered for the official proclamation of the word of God, where the elders of the church have gathered and are exercising oversight of the church. That is in the church. That is what is meant by in the church. Now, in this regard, there is in Scripture a distinction between private worship, family worship, and public worship. All three are very important. Everybody needs to be engaged in all three. But there is a distinction. And you can study the Scriptures, and you'll see that God puts the greatest onus upon public worship. Even though private and family worship is necessary, 
public worship stands in itself in a special way. That's why it says in Psalms, God loves the gates of Zion more than any other place, any, any other dwelling place. That's why the psalm says, the roads that lead to Jerusalem are holy. Put it in the modern uh, vernacular, the road coming here on I-40 is holy because it leads us to public worship. And God dwells with us in a special way in public worship. So what he's addressing here are admonitions with guard tongues and prophecy in public worship and what women can or cannot do in public worship. What does he say here? He says, let the women keep silent in the churches. That's the key. For they are not permitted to speak, but let them subject themselves, just as the law also says. And if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it isn't proper for a woman to speak in church. The key is in church. Now, we've got to understand several things. You can read the New Testament and find out very quickly who was speaking in tongues on the day of Pentecost in fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. Women, daughters. It says your daughters and your sons shall prophesy. And they did. On the day of Pentecost, women prophesied. Philip's daughters, Philip the evangelist, Philip the deacon, had two had several daughters who were prophetesses. Well, is there a contradiction in the Word of God? Well, the thing here is, who says that you have to only give a prophecy in the context of public worship? We saw that when we studied about Deborah, remember? Deborah was known as a prophetess. Where did she prophesy? Under a sycamore tree at her home. At her home. So these prophetesses, uh, obviously on the, day of, on the day of Pentecost, there was prophecy going on by women, but it was not in the context of public worship. And Philip's daughters prophesied during the apostolic period, but it was not in public worship. What about teaching? We are told that Priscilla, with her husband Aquila, instructed the mighty Apollos. Where? In their home. They said she did it in, in public worship. They, they were in their home. And she, along with her husband, it said in Acts, taught Apollos, who had not yet heard about this, the baptism of the Holy Spirit and things of this nature. And he had to be instructed. There is no indication in the New Testament, that women did not pray along with men in private homes. But they didn't pray in public worship. In fact, they're told not to pray in public worship. This is reserved for men to lead in prayer in public worship. Turn with me to 1 Timothy Chapter 2, take a look again at verse 8. If you notice in this passage, he's going to give instructions to women, give the basis for that. 
there's a great similarity between 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Corinthians 14. In 1 Corinthians, I mean, 1 Timothy 2, verse 8, he says, Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works as befits women making a claim to godliness. Let a woman quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. Now, just from verse 9, you would, you would gather the fact that he's making a distinction between males and females. Because he says, likewise, women in verse 9. However, the Greek is indisputable. Because there are two words in Greek that are used to translate men. One word that's used in the New Testament is the word anthropos. And that word anthropos is a generic term for men that incorporates both male and female. But there is also another Greek word for men, and that's the word aner. And, and that is the word used here. And wherever aner is used, it's always in contrast to, to woman. Aner is a reference to a male human being. So Paul makes it very clear, if you knew Greek, there would be no discussion, whatever, what he meant. Therefore, I want the males in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. And so men are told, males are told to lead in public worship. And as you know, in verses 11 through 15 of 1 Timothy 2, Paul states that women in the church are not to have leadership over men, because of the creation ordinance that God made man the male first and by the fact that it was the woman that was deceived and not the male. So therefore, in the church, in public worship, women are not to have leadership over males. In public worship. Now, one thing, <clears throat> during the apostolic period, Again, women prophesied and spoke in tongues outside of public worship. But they didn't do it in the church by the command of Paul for order in public worship. There is evidence, as we've already said, that Aquila taught Apollos in her home, but she didn't teach him in the church. Or we could say that women may have prayed with the men privately, at homes, but not in public worship. So the principle, this principle itself, think about it. This goes to show you one of the failings in the charismatic movement, because oftentimes that principle in itself is violated. Oftentimes the, a, a majority of those prophesying and speaking in tongues are women, and, as you may know, there were women pastors, and not unfrequent in this, uh, this expression of the visible church. Clear violation of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14. Now, again, I'm not, I want you to understand, I'm not, <clears throat> what criticism I may be making here is not addressed towards the people themselves and their godliness in one respect, 
but in terms of how they are to behave in the church. We have to be very careful that we don't violate the Scripture. Paul makes that distinction. He says there is a place for everything. And, and there is a place for women to act and carry out their roles, but there is a place they need to remain silent. And in public worship, they need to remain silent. Why? That's how God has orderly structured his church. Now, in saying this, I want to emphasize that experience never trumps the Scripture. One of my experience, uh, it can be a blessing. It doesn't matter what your experience is. Experiences don't matter if they violate the Word of God. You can, in the Old Testament, you can have a false prophet who can prophesy and seduce people, be very persuasive, but lead them astray, and God is very upset with that. Paul says very clearly that with reference during the apostolic period, if there were prophets or there were tongue speakers, they needed to be take their turn, and it only could be males. Only males, speakers in tongues, only male prophets in public worship. That's how it needs to be done. Again, the reason that there may not be confusion. Now, even though prophecy has ceased, and tongues have ceased, and the word of knowledge has ceased, and the reason they have ceased is because the perfect, remember, has come, First Corinthians 13, 8. The perfect has come. The full revelation of God is now with us. We don't need those partial revelations. It is all in the canon of Scripture now. And in this regard, he says that we no longer need these gifts. However, the principle of orderliness is still a valid principle in the church. And it will remain a valid principle until Jesus comes. So while we may say we need to understand 1 Corinthians 14 in its historical context, we need to understand the major, the major principle, and that's still important. It needs to be the church needs to be edified with the spiritual gifts. That's a given, and there needs to be order in the public worship. That's a given, and it needs to be in a language that you understand. Now, if I were to speak Spanish or German or Russian to you, and if you all don't know those languages, I have not accomplished anything with reference to you. But confusion, right? Because you'd be sitting there thinking, what in the world is with him? I don't understand a thing he's saying. What was church like today? Well, I don't know. I mean, it was confusing. I mean, he may have been animated, but I sure didn't understand a thing he said. Because I didn't speak in a language you could understand. Now, how does that principle carry forth? Well, the Reformers understood this. Here's how they, they, the Protestant Reformation understood this, and it was a, a prominent teaching in the Protestant Reformation. The Roman Catholic Church had conducted Mass in Latin. In fact, in many places, it's still done in Latin. Not all places, but in many places, it's still done in Latin. 
How many of y'all know Latin? Oh, you know a little bit? Could you listen to that? Maybe. Most people don't know Latin. Enough, no, not Latin enough to be able to listen to it and understand everything clearly. You know, up until the 18th and 19th century, uh, one of the modifications or caveats that we have in the Confession of Faith and the RPCUS is that if you read the Confession, it talks about ministers being examined. I'll tell you this, ministerial candidates are thankful that we have this caveat because it says you're to have a prolonged examination in Latin. Now, the thing about it was, Latin really was the language of theology for centuries. A lot of theological works were done in Latin. The great synod of Dort, where the, the, the five points of Calvinism, where it came from, it was, done, it was in Latin because the church, when they dealt with theology, they spoke in Latin. A lot of the great theological works were done in Latin. But you see, in a church setting, if you don't know Latin, it's not going to help you. So that one of the, the great emphases of the Protestant Reformation was they forbid anything being done in Latin to the common people. And the reason was because you, you couldn't understand. The Protestant Reformation, in its emphasis on sola scriptura, wanted the people to be able to have, to hear the Bible in their own vulgar or vernacular language. And that's why there was an emphasis upon translations of the Bible into the language of the people. Praise God for the John Wycliffe's and the William Tyndall's, who, though greatly persecuted, determined to put the Bible into the language of the common people. Wycliffe lived during the 14th century. He had published his Bible in 1382. He was the first, his Bible was the first translation uh, into English. He was a great preacher of solid biblical doctrine. Now, we're talking about a century and a half before the Protestant Reformation. Wycliffe is called the morning star of the Reformation because a lot of his doctrines of the Reformation were already being preached by him. And he ran into conflict with the Roman Catholic Church on numerous doctrines. They didn't like him. He will die two years after his translation of the Bible into English. And he'll die in 1384. I've always found this somewhat humorous. In uh, 1415, the Roman Catholic Church will declare Wycliffe a heretic, and the Pope will order his bones dug up so they could be burned at the stake and cast into the river, which they did, 30 years after his death. But Wycliffe saw the need of the Bible to be in the language of the English-speaking people. Tyndall's translation, Tyndall was just prior, lived just prior to the Protestant Reformation. Tyndall was, a, his translation was the first English Bible to draw directly from the Hebrew and the Greek texts. And his Bible was the first to take advantage of Gutenberg's invention of the printing press. And it was the first New English Bible 
of the Reformation, Tyndall's translation. But they understood. They und- I'll put it this way. And the reason I mention Wycliffe and Tyndall, they are putting into practice the principles of 1 Corinthians 14. Unless the church is edified, a foreign language is no good unless you have an interpreter. The Bible is no good to you unless you can understand it being proclaimed. Or you can read it. Now, the common people didn't know Latin, so they couldn't even read the Latin versions of the Bible. And so, this principle of 1 Corinthians 14, the main principle of the edification of the body, is an, it was an emphasis of the Protestant Reformation. Why do Reformed churches today, why does the RPCUS, our denomination, in keeping with the emphasis of the Protestant Reformation? Here's another emphasis of 1 Corinthians 14. Why do we emphasize preaching the way we do? The spiritual gift of tongues and the prophecy have ceased because the perfect has come. But the gift of pastor-teacher, the gift of teachers, which is another gift along with pastor-teacher, is a necessary gift to the end of the world so that the Bible can be exposited towards the, to the people, that they may be instructed in the Word of God. This is why we have the emphasis that we do on expository preaching. Paul said to the Ephesian uh, elders in Acts chapter 20, he says, I have not shrunk back to proclaim to you the whole counsel of God. God, I mean, Paul just did not just pick out his favorite, you know, hobby horses to preach on. He says, I will teach you the whole counsel of God. And one of the values of expository preaching is that I can't just preach what I would like to preach to you or my favorite things. Now, I have some favorite topics. You know some of them. But I want to be responsible as a pastor to edify you with the whole counsel of God. So I'll be dealing with text, and you may say, well, you know what? 1 Corinthians 14 may not, the application of 1 Corinthians 14 may not have been the same as in 1 Corinthians 13 on the faces of love. But guess what? 1 Corinthians 14 is in the Bible. And it needs to be, uh, we need to understand 1 Corinthians 14. We've seen its relevance. And so we have to teach this expositorily so that you understand. The Protestant Reformation emphasized preaching in the worship of God. It emphasized the primacy of preaching. Why? So that you could be edified. So you could understand the Word of God. So that you could apply the Word of God to your everyday life. And so we see that preaching is so vital. Now that is what is sad in the visible church today is that, as you are probably quite aware of, that preaching has taken a backstage to other forms of things being valued in public worship. As important as singing is, we should not try to be boring in our singing. We don't want that. But singing is not more important than the preaching of the Word of God. 
The focus should always be upon the preaching of the Word of God. And Paul, and, and in public worship, in the apostolic period, what was the emphasis? It was still with reference to the Word of God, wasn't it? If it was tongues, it had to be interpreted. If it was prophecy, what's the purpose of prophecy? To, t- to tell you what God says so that you may obey His commandments. It was still preaching in that sense, in a true sense. Every great revival in the history of the world has revolved around the faithful and powerful preaching of the Word of God. I don't know of any true great work of God that did not have as center stage several things. God raising up certain men and giving them gifts of preaching, sometimes unparalleled to other times in history, combined with a diligent undergirding of people praying for that preaching to be effective. And as a result of that, as I've mentioned to you, when you had powerful preaching, with faithful prayer warriors praying for that preaching, mighty things happened. As I told you, before Whitfield began his outdoor preaching, he and Wesley, before that split, they, in the holy club, that actually finally became truly holy, (laughs) and not a works righteousness that it previously was. Whitfield said, we prayed for three or four hours, believing that God was going to do something great through our preaching. And then he went out and preached. And then God just sent a revival. He breathed on the people. What can you say? I mean, there are a lot of preachers that preach and people don't heed. But people did heed. Thousands upon thousands heeded their preaching. But it was combined with with prayer and the preaching of the Word. There was that great emphasis. And one of the things that we can learn from First. Corinthians 14, not only is the principle of order in worship, but the value and the necessity in the primacy of preaching. So I conclude by emphasizing what is the main focus of 1 Corinthians 14. The edification of the body of Christ through the proclaimed word of God. To be carried out in an orderly fashion according to the commandments of Scripture.